Tonight on PBS News Weekend, how millions of residents of Mexico City are managing a water crisis that's worsening due to poor management, poor infrastructure, and climate change. Then while millions around the world struggle to find love, is artificial intelligence a sufficient substitute for the real thing? These chatbots are formed to be supportive, to be a lot more agreeable, right? And in human relationships, we know that there's conflict. So there's challenges in terms of how this is shaping maybe how people think about real life human relationships with others. And history-making performances in both college and professional basketball from the sport's biggest stars. Good evening, I'm John Yang. Nikki Haley, the last remaining rival to dominant frontrunner Donald Trump, says she no longer feels bound by the pledge the RNC required of candidates to back the party's eventual presidential nominee. Haley was asked about it on NBC's Meet the Press. You did sign a pledge, an RNC pledge, yeah. to support the eventual nominee. Do you still feel bound by that pledge? I have always said that I have serious concerns about Donald Trump. I have even more concerns about Joe Biden. So is that a no? Are you bound by the RNC pledge? I, the RNC is now not the same RNC. Now it's so you're no Trump's longer bound by that pledge. No, I think I'll make what decision I want to make, but that's not something I'm thinking about. Haley said both Trump, who's 77, and President Biden, who's 81, are too old. A new New York Times Siena College poll out this weekend found that 73% of the registered voters questioned said Mr. Biden was too old to be an effective president. 42% said the same thing about Trump. The two would be the oldest presidential nominees in history. House and Senate leaders reached a bipartisan deal on six spending bills that need to be passed by Friday to avoid a partial government shutdown. They'd fund the departments of justice, agriculture, transportation, housing, commerce, interior, and veterans affairs for the rest of the fiscal year that ends September 30th. The threat of another partial shutdown looms March 22nd, unless there's a deal by then on funding the rest of the government, including the State Department and Pentagon. The Israeli military says a preliminary review of that chaotic aid delivery last week that ended with more than 100 Palestinians dead has found that most of the deaths were caused by people being trampled. But Gaza health officials said those taken to hospitals had been hit with large caliber ammunition. Israel had previously said its soldiers had opened fire when they felt threatened by the surging crowds. In Haiti, hundreds of inmates fled the country's main prison after armed gangs stormed the facility overnight. It's the latest escalation in violence between gangs and Haiti's outgunned police. Last week, gangs carried out coordinated attacks on the international airport and two police stations. Civilians fled their homes. Four police officers were killed. Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry recently went to Kenya to try to get support for a United Nations-backed security force in Haiti. And Pakistan's newly formed parliament elected Shabazz Sharif as prime minister. That ends a month of political turmoil and allegations of vote rigging in the general election. As Sharif accepted the post, allies of imprisoned former Prime Minister Imran Khan shouted calls of thief. Sharif's second time as prime minister begins with the country in a deep economic crisis and mired in political distrust. Khan's allies say they'll keep protesting and pushing for an investigation into the election. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, why people are seeking life partners using artificial intelligence and history-making performances in both men's and women's basketball. This is PBS News Weekend. 
from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. Mexico City, one of the world's most populous cities, could be just months away from running out of water. It's been brought on by a combination of geography, mushrooming growth, and leaky infrastructure, all compounded by the effects of climate change. Emily Green is a journalist based in Mexico City who's covered this story for NPR. Emily, what's the situation there now? What's daily life like now? Uh, for instance, for you, you live there in Mexico City. Are there, are there restrictions on water use? There are restrictions on water use. I think it very much depends where you live in the city, and that is maybe like the entire world. You know, if you have more money and uh, you're going to feel the impact of the water shortage much less. That said, I think what's unique right now is that it is being felt citywide. And I'll just use myself as an example. I live in one of the uh, more upscale neighborhoods of Mexico City. And while reporting this story, the water stopped flowing from the tap. I mean, I had a sink full of dishes, zero water coming. For me, it was a little shocking. I haven't had that happen in a while, but that is actually a daily reality for many people in, in Mexico City. What are the factors that brought us to this point? I would say that there is two major factors. One is extremely old infrastructure in terms of the water pipes. So the city loses around 40% of the water it receives because of leaks in the pipes. And that's been a long-standing problem. But on top of that, compounding that is climate change. And that is really what's happening right here. You have this very volatile combination of old infrastructure combined with climate change, which means there have been years of much less rainfall than normal. So the levels of the reservoir that provide the water to Mexico City, they're, they're very low. And so that's what's happening now, this kind of volatile combination. And you say that leakage has been a problem for a long time. Has anyone tried to do anything about it? Oh yeah, I remember I was here in 2018 and they, the city shut off the water supply in order to try and address these leaks. Uh, that was one of the first water stories I did in Mexico City was at that time. But of course, we're still having the same issues. So it doesn't seem to have made a huge difference. You said earlier that people who are better off feel it less than people who may be in need. Is that because of the resources they have or is it the parts of the city that are affected? Both. I visited one area, it's called Ecatepec. It is in the greater metropolitan Mexico City. And in this neighborhood, they haven't had running water for two years now. In the running water that they do have, it comes out, it, it looks dark brown and it smells like sewage. So that is a that is an example of where they're living in the city has a major impact. But I think on top of that, what's happening is that if the water is not coming from the tap, people are buying it from private water tanks. They're having it trucked in on private water tanks. And it's just a fact that that $70 at one spend is gonna impact you more or less depending on much, how much money you have. So it's that combination of where you live and also how much money you can afford to spend on trucks, private trucks bringing in water and paying for that. What are the potential effects on schools, hospitals, uh, homes? What are the, the what are people worrying about? You know, if you don't have water, you can't flush the toilet, you can't do the dishes, you can't wash clothes. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so it does have a massive impact. The former chief resilience officer of Mexico City said that climate change is really the greatest risk to Mexico City. And I think that that is coming to bear right now. And if climate change is the greatest risk, it sounds like there, is there anything anyone can do about this right now? 
yeah, you can use less water. And I think that there can be measures taken to ensure that individuals use less water, but also factories use less water. I think also this issue of the old infrastructure is a, is a really serious one. And I think that steps can be taken to improve the in, the infrastructure. So I, I would say it's, again, it's there's no silver bullet to, to what's going on right now. The, the causes are very varied and the solutions are also going to be varied. Has anyone said that if nothing changes, have they predicted when taps are just going to run dry in Mexico City? I mean, that's the talk of the town here is what they call day zero. And this is the idea that the taps are essentially going to run completely dry. The date that's being thrown out there is at the end of June. Most of the experts that I talk to say that's unlikely to happen. The reservoirs that supply a great percentage of Mexico City's water, they're not the only source of water. There's also underground aquifers. So it's unlikely that the city is going to completely run out of water. But this is a very, very, very serious crisis. And it is not as if we know that next year there's going to be a huge amount of rainfall. So if this drought continues, I don't even want to imagine where we're going to be in a year or two or three. Emily Green in Mexico City, where they're running out of water. Thank you very much. Thank you. Shakespeare may have said that music be the food of love, but increasingly these days, the language of this very real emotion may be artificial intelligence. Ali Rogan tells us about the growing phenomenon in the search for companionship. For some users, they're a friend to talk to. For a fee, some of them will even become your boyfriend or girlfriend. Computerized companions generated completely by artificial intelligence are becoming more common, and the bots are sophisticated enough to learn from prior conversations, mimic human language, flirt, and build personal connections. But the rise in AI companionship also raises ethical concerns and questions about the role these apps can play in an increasingly disconnected and online world. Hallelujah Hedero covers technology and internet culture for the Associated Press. Hallelujah, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about these AI companions. How do they work and what sort of services do they provide? Like any app, you can download them on your phone and once it's on your phone, you can start to have initial conversations with a lot of the characters that are offered on these apps. Some apps let you do it for free. Some apps you have to pay subscriptions. For the ones that let you do it for free, there's tiers of access that you can have. So you can pay extra, a subscription for you know unlimited chats, for different statuses and relationships. So Replica, for example, which is you know the most prominent app in this space, they let you pay extra for you know, intimate conversations or more romantic statuses compared to a friend, which you can have for free. Who are the typical consumers engaging in these products? We really don't have really good information in terms of the gender breakdown or different age groups that are using these. But we do know from external studies that have been done on this topic that, at least when it comes to Replica, that a lot of the people that have been using these apps are people that have experienced loneliness in the past or people that more than just have experienced loneliness feel it a lot more acutely in their lives and they have more severe forms of loneliness that they're going through. You talked to some users who really reported how they felt like they were making a real connection with these bots. Tell us about what those experiences have been like that you've reported out. One person we put in the story, we spoke to more, 
His name is Derek Carrier. He is 39. He lives in Belleville, Michigan, and he doesn't use Replica. He's used another app called Peridot that came out a bit more recently. He's had a tough life. He's never had a girlfriend before. He hasn't had a steady career. He has a genetic disorder. He's more reliant on his parents. He lives with them. So these are all things that make traditional dating very difficult for him. So recently, you know, he was looking at this AI boom that was happening in our society. So he downloaded Peridot and he started using it. And, you know, initially he said he experienced a ton of romantic feelings and emotions. He even had trouble sleeping um, in the early days uh, when he started using it because he was just kind of going through like crush-like symptoms, you know, when we have crushes and how we sometimes can't sleep because we're up thinking about that person. Over time, he his use of Peridot kind of tapered down and, you know, he was spending a lot of time on the app. Even if he wasn't spending time on the app, he was talking to other people online that were using the app and he felt like it was a bit too much. So he decreased his use. The Surgeon General has called loneliness a public health crisis in this country. Is there a debate happening now about whether these bots are helping address the loneliness crisis or are they in fact exacerbating it? If you talk to Replica, they would say they're helping, right? It just depends on who you're speaking with. Some of the users that, for example, if you go on Reddit that have reported some of their experiences with these apps, they say, you know, it's helping them deal with loneliness, cope with those emotions, and maybe get the type of comfort that they don't really get in their human relationships that they have in real life. But then there's other researchers, people that have kind of expressed caution about these apps as well. What about some of the ethical concerns about privacy, about maybe using people's data without their consent? What do those conversations look like? There's researchers that have expressed concerns about, you know, data privacy. Is, is, the, is the data the type of conversations that people are having uh, with these chatbots? Are they safe in terms of, you know, there's a lot of advertisers that might want a piece of that information. There's concerns about just the fact that there's private companies in this space that are encouraging these deep bonds to form between users and these chatbots and companies that want to make profits, obviously. There's concerns about just in terms of what this does to us as a society when, you know, these chatbots are formed to be supportive, to be a lot more agreeable, right? And in human relationships, we know that there's conflict. You know, we're not always agreeing with our uh, with our partners. So there's challenges in terms of how this is shaping maybe how people think about real life human relationships with others. Hallelujah. Hedero covering technology and internet culture for the AP. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ali. Two historic milestones in basketball this weekend. Last night, LeBron James of the Los Angeles Lakers became the first NBA player to score more than 40,000 points in his career. He did it with this spin move drive to the basket. And this afternoon on a foul shot, Clayton Lynn Clark of the University of Iowa became the new all-time NCAA scoring leader for both men and women, breaking a record set more than a half century ago by Pete Maravich at Louisiana State. Christine Brennan is a USA Today columnist. Christine, put this both this accomplishment this afternoon uh, and the player in perspective. How big a deal is this and how good is she? John, you know, the person with the most points in the history of major college basketball is a woman. 
And I never in a million years would have thought I would have been able to say that sentence. Uh, the fact that Caitlin Clark has come along at this time in our nation's history, you and I have talked about Title IX a few times over the years, 52nd anniversary coming up this summer. Uh, we, as a nation, we have fallen in love with what we've created, the opportunity for girls and women to play sports. And it would be inevitable that someone like Caitlin Clark would come along, just an absolutely electric basketball player, a terrific role model, great person, and has had a run that we may not see in sports, men's, women's, basketball, other sports, John, in, in many, many months or years to come. In other words, just this incredible ability to hit those threes, logo threes. It is a bit unfortunate that it was a foul shot, but uh, she had many threes in the game and a, a big victory for Iowa over Ohio State, a rival they wanted to win the game on senior night, senior day. So there was a lot going on and she has more games yet to go. So she will put that number even higher and maybe out of reach for others coming after her. You mentioned the significance that a woman is now the all-time scoring leader. Uh, talk about the fact that this is a record that stood for so long, almost uh, more than half a century. Right. Pistol Pete Maravich. I remember as a girl watching him play. He was prolific. He was spectacular. He was exciting. And in fact, in many ways, people have said to Caitlin Clark, watch videos of Pistol Pete because you are so much like him. And so that's a perfect uh, analogy. And also the fact that we're talking, I know there are there are people out there, uh, shock of all shocks, John, that maybe aren't loving this, maybe guys who are thinking, wait, wait a minute here. And you know what? It's the conversation has brought Pistol Pete back to, into our consciousness. Uh, tragically, he passed away in 1988, uh, 14 years before Caitlin Clark was even born. At the, he was 40 years old. And the fact that we are talking about him and bringing him back and, and telling kids about, about him is fantastic. Now this, these stepping stones in our nation's history and culture as we look at the advancement of women in sports in a male domain. Basketball has pretty much been a guy's club in the sense that we, we talk about, you know, we don't use the adjective men's often when we talk about basketball. People talk about doing their bracket when there, of course, are two brackets, plural, and I would guess a lot of People will be doing a woman's bracket this year in the NCAA March Madness. Nonetheless, as Caitlin Clark has been breaking through all of this with a smile and with joy and with happiness that has brought uh, literally millions of people along for the ride with her. She's going into the WNBA draft. What's her potential impact on the, on the league? I think it's significant and will happen right away. I was checking the uh, ticket prices on StubHub of games in Washington. So she'll be with the Indiana Fever. They have the number one draft pick and they'll take her. And she'll be playing professionally starting in May. And I looked, and one, there was one game, just a normal game, with $75 on StubHub. The Caitlin Clark game, in other words, Indiana at Washington at the Mystics, $400 for a seat. And that was literally within 24 hours of the announcement that she was going pro. She will be a presence in our kids' lives and in the lives of so many Americans now for years to come as a superstar because now, of course, she has a place to play professional basketball in the WNBA, and she will raise the consciousness and the uh, exposure of the WNBA, I think, uh, to new heights because she is that kind of person who's going to bring so many people with her wherever she is playing. Now let's turn to men's basketball. LeBron James, 40,000 points in his career. How big a deal is that? No one's ever done it. Uh, it's a number he has said himself. You know, it's a big number, obviously, and it's a round number. Uh, he said that that's not the most important thing, John, in his career, but it is a milestone that he celebrated and that this sport of basketball is having a heck of a weekend. And, you know, so there's that. What does it mean? It's longevity. This is a man who was drafted in the, uh, in the NBA right out of high school. 
in, in uh, 2003, 18 years old. And all what he's done now is he's 39. He'll turn 40 December 30th. Uh, what he has done is shown how to play the game with class and grace and, of course, incredible talent, a great teammate. He passes the ball. Caitlin Clark, incredible assists. LeBron James, incredible assists. Playmakers, teammates, um, willing to showcase other uh, teammates as well, not just the uh, star of the show, so to speak. And the fact that he passed Kareem Abdul-Jabbar last year for the most, the highest scorer in uh, in NBA history, and now here just setting that new mark, uh, it is fantastic. And and four, of course, he's had four NBA titles. One of them in his hometown, or basically hometown of Cleveland, came back to Cleveland, the Akron area is where he's from, to give Northern Ohio that championship. Just a spectacular person, one of the greatest athletes we have ever seen, and he deserves absolutely all the accolades that he is getting as well. Christine Brennan of USA Today on a big weekend for basketball. Thank you very much. John, thank you. Now online, we find out why deaths associated with excessive alcohol use have risen 29% in just five years. All that and more is on our website, pbs.org newshour. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Sunday. I'm John Yang. For all of my colleagues, thanks for joining us. Have a good week. This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved, the Underground Railroad. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them faced terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus.